Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, intern Chanel Polito has a story for us on how wildfire smoke may be increasing the risk of COVID-19. It's a timely story as cases and smoke are both on the rise. After that, environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg sits down with Joey to discuss the cancellation of a recent solar plant project that would have been the largest in Nevada. At the end of the show, intern Janelle Calderon comes on to talk with me about new child tax credits that are sending hundreds of federal dollars each month to Nevada families with kids. Janelle also talks to Francine Lippman, a tax expert with the UNLV Boyd School of Law. A recent study from Nevada's own Desert Research Institute shows that incoming wildfire smoke may make the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic worse. Intern Chanel Polito has more. Those who want to enjoy the outdoors in northern Nevada this summer may have to rethink their plans. A recent study suggests that there was a strong association between persistent wildfire smoke and increased rates of COVID-19 in Reno last summer. The study found that cases went up by about 18% in Reno during the time period most affected by wildfire smoke from August 16 to October 10, 2020. Already, smoke from several California and Nevada-based wildfires, such as the Beckworth Complex Fire, Tamarack Fire, and Dixie Fire, have blanketed regions of northern Nevada. This may potentially cause dangerous air quality levels similar to those in Northern Nevada last summer. Daniel Kaiser is one of the co-authors of the study and assistant research scientist of data science at the Nevada-based Desert Research Institute. He said that intermountain valleys, such as Reno, can be particularly susceptible to greater magnitudes of particulate matter. There's not yet been enough evidence to show a direct causation between wildfire smoke and COVID-19 rates but there's good reason to suspect causation. Here's researcher Kaiser. There are reasons to think that it may be causal. And one of those reasons is just the the chronological order. You know, you see a spike in PM 2.5, followed by a spike in COVID cases. You know, and that would be expected if there was causation. doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're seeing. The reason why we suspect causation there may be some mechanisms that have been postulated that could explain why we see uh, more COVID-19 cases when PM 2.5 goes up. This isn't the only study that suggests a connection between illnesses and air pollution. A study published in November 2020 in the peer-reviewed scientific journal Science Advances found that people who lived in counties with high levels of air pollution are more likely to die from COVID-19 than people who live in less polluted areas, using data from last April to June. There are also other studies that show a connection between elevated levels of air pollution and increased infectivity and severity of COVID-19 cases in Italy, England, China, the US, and other nations. Other studies show an association between poor air quality and rates of other respiratory infections. Luke Monroe is an assistant professor of community and environmental health at Boise State University. He isn't affiliated with the study, but he wrote an essay about the effects of wildfire smoke on the body and what people can do to protect themselves. 
He believes that there is enough evidence for individuals and policymakers to start taking protective measures now. If you take all of that together, observationally, I think there's enough to suggest that there's room to be worried about folks who are being exposed to wildfire smoke and who are not vaccinated and who may also be exposed to the coronavirus. The data does not yet confirm how exactly wildfire smoke may affect COVID-19. Research Kaiser's study notes that some possible explanations include particulate matter modifying immune responses, facilitating the transport of the virus into the lungs, and causing the body to overproduce the molecule that COVID-19 binds to. Professor Monrose said it is best to proceed as if the smoke does increase the risk of getting infected. We don't know yet whether or not, for sure, whether or not people who are exposed to smoke are more vulnerable to getting, transmitting, or getting sick from the coronavirus. The best data we have suggests that we should be taking precautions as if it does, but the jury is still out on that, and we certainly don't have the type of data that we would need to know about vulnerability to different strains of the virus. So I would say it's best to use caution and proceed as if wildfire smoke does impact our susceptibility to the coronavirus. Professor Monroe said that people need to simultaneously address the problem of wildfires and COVID-19. I believe that we have essentially two, two main problems. We have the, the, the virus, the coronavirus, and we have wildfire smoke. We as a community, if, if we are downwind of wildfires, active wildfires, we should be supporting those men and women who are fighting those fires and trying to get those fires under control. And in the long term, we probably need to think and talk about ways to manage our forests and our fires into the future in a way that makes sense for our our Western region. I, I would also say, so, so we have some ways to control that, but when there's an active fire that's producing smoke, you know, we, we can only hope that the, the wildland firefighters are able to put that out and to get that smoke and fire under control as quickly as possible. But we, we really don't have a lot of control over that. What we do have control over is, to a certain extent, is whether or not our communities are getting vaccinated against coronavirus. So I think it's a complex problem with probably a complex solution. And we probably need to be thinking about long-term solutions for wildfires and wildfire smoke. And in the short term, we need to be protecting our communities to to the best of our ability from the coronavirus. Researcher Kaiser agreed that vaccinations still play an important role in protecting people from getting sick with COVID-19. You know, in order for us to see the effect that we saw, you know, there needs to be exposure to wildfire smoke and also exposure to COVID-19. And the vaccines are very effective at reducing exposure to COVID. So I would say that if anything, you know, the possibility of wildfire smoke may increase your risk. It's just another reason to increase the urgency of being vaccinated. There are also other things people can do to protect themselves from wildfire smoke. The biggest thing is to try and not be outdoors when um, the wildfire smoke is really bad. Now it's not 
always possible. I think there is guidance provided by the CDC on certain masks that do work you know, for people who work outside or for whatever reason have to be out there. But I think in general, if there are alternatives to inhaling lots of wildfire smoke, those should be pursued. You know, I'm certainly trying to avoid strenuous exercise outdoors is a good idea. So anything that you can do to reduce your exposure to wildfire smoke is good. And the CDC has recommendations. So there's some information out there about that. Learn more about the findings of the study and what that means for Nevada during the upcoming wildfire season in Chanel's story published on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. So I'm now joined by our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg, to talk about a story that he recently worked on on solar power in the state. Daniel, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on, Joey. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the story that you wrote in your weekly Thursday newsletter, Indie Environment. There are plans to build the state's largest solar facility in the Moapa Valley, the Battleborn Solar Project, which is in the Moapa Valley's northeast of Las Vegas. That project's been canceled. What's going on with that? So the project was going to be on federal public land managed by the Bureau of Land Management. In order to build on that land, you have to file an application with the Bureau of Land Management. And essentially what the developer did was withdraw that application preserving their rights to refile it in the future. So the project's not completely canceled forever, but for now it's certainly on hold and canceled. And I think there there are a couple things going on and and to some extent what what I focused on in my newsletter was sort of the opposition that we've seen to this solar project from a variety of different groups. The project had some other issues as well. It was not located close to transmission or as close to transmission as other projects. And it was not in one of these designated solar energy zones that federal land managers have prioritized for developing solar. But, you know, in the focus of my newsletter was that this this project really did get a lot of opposition from local residents, from environmental groups, from off-roaders who see this as an important part of the area's recreation economy. And as well, actually from the art community, there is a piece of land art from 1969 by Michael Heiser called Double Negative. And people were worried that it would damage the integrity of that piece of land art. So you saw opposition from a lot of groups. What this project really highlights to me is while there is wide support for developing more renewable energy and more solar, and in fact, it's the state's policy and the country's policy to do so, there is still opposition. The land might look vacant, but it's being used for other purposes. So really the task at hand for the federal government and the state government and local government is to find places for for this development to occur that are lower conflict areas, that they don't conflict as much with current land uses. And that's what this project really highlighted for me and what I focused on in my newsletter, despite those other challenges that I mentioned, like lack of proximity to transmission. So one thing too, you know, you're talking about finding these areas of land that are kind of low conflict. I read a headline yesterday about this actually, that was like millionaire landowners are upset that their view is being ruined of the desert and a little bit maybe incendiary there. Is it hard to find areas for a solar plant of this, you know, magnitude and scale? Because, you know, we've got a lot of land in Nevada yeah. and a lot of it's, you know. No, it's a great question. And it's it's a relevant question. It's an important question for for us right now. We are at a crossroads with solar development 
and where to put it. And frankly, not everybody is going to come out of this process happy, probably. That said, I think that over that headline you read overstates the issue. This is not just millionaire landowners. These are people who are actually using the land on a daily basis. And I think their question is, well, why are you putting solar here on land that we value for recreation, that we value for protecting sensitive habitat, rather than putting that on land that's already been developed, damaged, disturbed, whether that's from industrial development, whether that's from abandoned mine lands, why why aren't we directing the development there or converting existing development to solar panels, putting it in these sort of vacant lots in the middle of the city? And there's all sorts of reasons why that is potentially more costly. There's counter arguments to all of these things, but I think that's the question people are asking. And I think what some groups are pushing for is sort of this comprehensive planning process that takes into consideration those concerns The other side of the equation, which is what developers can and can't do or what their limitations are, and really comes up with a comprehensive plan for for this issue because it's not going away. And as you mentioned, it is widespread. But the fact is, from an environmental perspective, and, and there's definitely a spectrum within that category of where environmental organizations are, but from an environmental organization perspective, the, the challenge really is to find a way to cite solar and renewable projects because we have this this imperative to do so with climate change but to do so in a way where we're not worsening this other these other environmental crises the biodiversity crisis the situation with mojave desert tortoise in southern nevada the greater sage grouse in northern nevada both two species that are indicator species for their ecosystems and face threats face multiple threats on the landscape. And the disturbance that you see from large-scale renewable certainly contributes to that. So finding a way to try to prioritize these projects in areas where there are fewer impacts, and it, it, it is a challenge. And I'm not here to say that there's an easy solution. I find it a really interesting, this this dichotomy when it comes to conservation and renewable energy, because there are conservation groups that are concerned about putting in, you know, wind turbines and solar and solar plants in places that are going to impact the environment. But at the same time, there's general sense when you talk to conservation groups that renewable energy is a good thing. It's helpful. It's good for the environment. It's not putting out CO2 into the atmosphere. How do those two things interact? And and obviously they're butting heads here, but there has to be some sort of conflict within these people when they're considering opposing a, a solar project or a wind project? Yeah, that's a, this is a really good question, Joey. And I think that there is the conflict. And, and frankly, you, you see some environmental groups opposing these projects and you see some of them not opposing these projects. And there is an internal conflict. I think what a lot of groups do agree on is the need to have a plan to prioritize development in areas where there are fewer conflicts, where there, there is less sensitive habitat. And I think that this isn't a conversation that's just limited to environmental groups. There are local governments, local agencies, state government, and the federal government, which has a responsibility to manage public land for multiple uses in many cases. They all have varying opinions and interests about how quickly and where these projects should go. I think the the Battleborn project, which I wrote about this week, which we're talking about, is a good example of that because 
You had on one hand, the CISLAC administration wrote a letter early on last year encouraging that this project be fast-tracked. But at the same time, Clark County had a lot of concerns about the project. And they're going through a sort of planning process of how they would ideally like to see some of this land be managed. And so there's a variety of different concerns that have to be taken into consideration. You you mentioned the CISELAC administration supported this project initially when it was first proposed. What is the impact of this project going to have on this initiative that we've passed in the last legislative session where we wanted to get to 50% renewable energy by 2030? Are we going to see a huge energy impact from this? This is just one project, and there are so many projects that are being proposed right now. If you go onto the PUC's website and look at their docket, there there is just an incredible rush right now to build renewables. And and I think that's why this conversation about planning is, is coming up. And part of my newsletter was focused on this letter that the State Land Use Planning Advisory Council sent to a bunch of state agencies in the governor's office and was supported by by members of the governor's cabinet to support or endorse this planning concept known as SMART from the start, which attempts to avoid some of these sensitive habitats and minimize development on these sensitive habitats with a preference for developing in specific low impact areas. In addition to the smart from the start concept, the Bureau of Land Management is also looking at updating its resource management plans, which I saw one presentation of the agency describe as basically like the public lands version of municipal zoning. There's gonna be more conversation about this and I'll be happy to talk to you more about it next week or on a future podcast. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for talking with me today on this podcast. And uh, we appreciate all of your reporting. And you can make sure to subscribe to your newsletter on Thursdays, Indie Environment. Uh, Check it out on our website. Daniel, thanks. Thanks. All right. And so I am here with intern Janelle Calderon. How's it going, Janelle? Hi, Joey. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. And uh, you just did a, a pretty big story on, on this new t- child tax credit that's going to be applying to everyone in the United States that has a kid, how it's going to impact Nevada families. Kind of I'm just curious, can you just explain to me what the child tax credit is for those who don't know? Yeah, so the child tax credit is an amount that eligible families get usually every year with their tax return, but this time around is monthly payments for children under six. It's going to be... a month. And for children between six and 17 years old, it's going to be $250 a month. And they made this increased from previous years. Usually families would only be eligible for $2,000 total. And now the families with children under six are eligible for $3,600 total. And between six and 17, is $3,000 total. The Biden administration increased this as part of the American Rescue Plan. As we know, it's trying to help people, families, children get out of poverty, uh, whether the pandemic or if they were already in poverty before the pandemic. It's meant to reach nearly 90% of children. So that's 39 million households in in the entire United States. And here in Nevada, it's it's hopefully going to reach 560,000 children. So I also spoke with UNLV professor Francine Lipman. Uh, she's part of the William S. Boyd School of Law. She focuses a lot in tax law, so she, she's very knowledgeable in this realm. It's too late, obviously, to file for the July 
15th, if you're just entering your information, you're likely going to miss out on that first payment. However, you will get the next payment starting August 15th. But even if you miss a payment, the good news is you will get the balance of the child tax credit. As I said, you're only getting half of the amount in advance. So even non-filers are going to have to file a tax return early next year to get the balance of this child tax credit. So even if you miss one payment or if you miss no up payments, no advance payments, you're still going to want to file a tax return in early 2022, even if you're historically a non-filer, to get the balance of the child tax credit. All right. And, and so can you explain to me, too, if you don't file your taxes or if you don't have to file your taxes or say you're undocumented, right, can you still get the child tax credit? Are you still eligible for it? Yeah. So Professor Lippman also told me that this credit is completely refundable. Now, what that means is that even if you would normally not file your income tax yearly, perhaps grandma and grandpa are taking care of the children and their only income is social security benefits, well, they're, they're not filing a tax return, but they are still taking care of the children and they can still receive this benefit. So they can go into the IRS website and register. Even though right now the first payment was already sent out in July, they can still receive the ones for August, September, all the way until December, and they can help them take care of the children if they need. And, and if you're undocumented, say, like, I know that there were some changes, and, and, and especially with, with children and the tax credit, because they can still actually get the tax credit, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. Actually, because a lot of undocumented people are still just members of our community, and they file taxes because they work. There's some families that have mixed immigration status within the family household. So they can still file their taxes. They can still receive this child credit. But the one change is that during the Trump administration, it was said that children need to have a social security number to be eligible for this credit. Now, there is one caveat to that. So the child, the qualifying child, does have to have a social security number. And so in order to qualify a taxpayer for the child tax credit, the child themselves, the qualifying child, has to have a social security number. However, neither parent has to have a social security number. As long as the child has a valid social security number, the the status of the parents doesn't matter. The Internal Revenue Service is not allowed to share information with other government agencies unless there is some sort of emergency. But under normal circumstances, the IRS really is don't ask, don't tell. They're not as interested they're really not interested in your immigration status. They're interested in you filing and reporting all of your income. And just again, how much money is actually coming into Nevada now for families with children with this tax credit? And how many people are going to be affected? How many children are going to be able to get benefits from this? 
So recent White House statistics show that more than 330,000 Nevada families will receive the first check this month. But as, as the news come out, we don't know, it could increase. But that amount, the 330,000 families, it would be $143 million to help 560,000 children. So, it's, and it's meant to take people out of poverty. They're looking to cut at least 50% of poverty in the entire United States. And it's a lot of families, 330,000. And it's not individuals, it's families. There's families of four people, then that would be over a million people in those 330,000 families. Yeah. And is this is this for anyone with kids or is it there is there a certain income limit where like if I make say like a million dollars a year am I still going to be getting these tax credits or what's the threshold there? Yeah, so there is some thresholds with the income. They say that basically all working families are eligible for the full credit, but the annual income limits are $75,000 or less for single filers. $112,500 or less for heads of households or 150000 or less for married couples filing a joint return or qualified widows or widowers. So Libman actually also mentioned that families that earn more will receive a smaller credit. And also if something happens that you are no longer eligible, you don't qualify for the credit, but you still receive the money, then next year, that you file your taxes, you're going to have to pay back the credit that you got because you weren't eligible when you got it. And, and then lastly, just to kind of wrap up, can you explain the way this is rolling out in a monthly fashion? That's kind of a different way than it was done in the past, right? Yeah. So even though families are eligible for whether it's 3000 or $3,600, depending on the age of the child, families are going to get half that amount from right now, from July until December. They will get the second half once they file their taxes in 2022. We also saw that this type of monthly approach is supposed to help families because, you know, accidents or certain things break and you can't just wait for the money. Like if the car breaks, if your AC breaks, it does affect your family, it does affect the children. So if you have that money available in your bank, you can take care of that instead of having to wait for the lump sum of money when you file your taxes. All right, Janelle, well, thank you so much for explaining all of that to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Chanel Polito, Daniel Kaiser, Luke Montrose, Daniel Rothberg, Janelle Calderon, and Francine Lippman for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our monthly multimedia newsletter, Soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, warrior cat names, fun facts about Pat Benatar, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Reno Band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Cool. Outro okay. time. Okay. Big outro time. Big, big outro. Big out. Here we go.